0: Hello, Bill. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together. As a church family, whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. As we look to the center of these circles, we ask ourselves, what's at the center of my life? What is the person, the goal, the thing, the idea that everything else in my life is revolving around? Because Jesus Christ says that he wants to be in the center of our lives. And if we ever invite him there, that we'll experience real life, both abundant life on earth and everlasting life after earth. I do want to just tack on to what Bill said uh, to say you guys have, I mean, you'll remember it's at the info table. There is a literal front and back sheet of ways you can serve outside of Lake Forest this uh, Christmas season. And so y'all been knocking them out of the park one after another. So I would encourage you, if you haven't found your way yet, or you're like, yeah, that, that was fun, but we got more to give, uh, go grab your literal front and back sheet and uh, and find ways that you can give this, this Christmas. We would love that. That would be fabulous. Uh, we're going to today wrap up our series about work. We have been trying to work through a more um, fresh and biblical perspective on the work that we do, whether you run a business or you uh, stock shelves at the Harris Teeter or you are preparing through your studies or you're raising your kids, whether you get paid a lot or a little or nothing at all, work occupies the bulk of our lives. And at its worst, work is a four-letter word. Now, I have to do it. I don't like it. It's an obligation. It pays the bills. But we have been looking at a more Christ-centered view of work, which is that work is primarily, work is a lot of things, but work is primarily a God-given gift, an opportunity for ministry, and a window into God's character. That work is, in addition to a bunch of other things, a God-given gift, an opportunity for ministry, and a window into God's character. So if someone were to stop you on the street this afternoon and say, hey buddy, what is work? Very forward person. You could say it is a gift, it is a ministry, and it is a window. It is a God given gift, an opportunity for ministry, and a window into God's character. Because if you are a Christian, or if you ever become a Christian, if you trust your life into the hands of Jesus Christ, Jesus starts to reshape you. And as part of reshaping you, hopefully work becomes less of a bad thing and more of a gift, more of a ministry, more of a window. So we've talked about work as a God-given gift. We've talked about work as a window into God's character. We've talked about where does money fit into all this. So today I want to wrap up by looking at work as a ministry. Work is a ministry. Again, work broadly defined here, but through the work that we do, God gives us one of our clearest and best opportunities for ministry and how we treat people and how we go about the task before us. Work is one of those places in our lives where our words and our actions can show that we are different because of Jesus. And so today I want to work through the passage that Lisa read for us earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 14 to 21, if you do not have a Bible, you are always welcome to take the ones in the chairs as our gift to you. The setup team would love that, in fact. Or if you'd prefer, you could get a, a Bible app. There's free Bible apps that you could download for any kind of noose-fangled smart device that you have. The setup team would love that too, though not quite as much, but that we just want you to have access to the Bible. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the author named Paul is trying to give us an overarching view of life, that if you are a Christian, or if you ever become a Christian, God is giving you a lens through which to make sense of your life, the overarching view of your life. So what I want to do is to walk us through this passage, and I want to do that specifically with an eye to the work that we do. So here we go, verse 14. That's all the lead in, here we go. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them, and was raised again. So the passage begins by saying, Paul says, as a Christian, what compels me is Christ's love. What keeps me moving forward is Christ's love. The fuel on which I run is Christ's. Love, not my own efforts, not a need for approval, but the love of Jesus Christ. And the love of Jesus Christ is a bottomless well. Now when you think about what keeps you moving forward in the work that you do, what is it? What keeps you moving forward in the work that you do? Again, whether you get paid nothing or a little or a lot or you're preparing through your studies, what fuels you, what keeps you running? Some may say a need for approval or a need for money, or I enjoy it. Well, enjoying your work is good. Making money is good. But God is inviting us to see that our lives, our entire lives, our work, our play, our school, our shopping, our just driving around, our eating lunch at the Taco Bell, our entire lives are fueled by the love of Jesus Christ. But when we get to work, we can be tempted to say, okay, Jesus, you need to stay in the car for a little while. I'm going to go in here and work for a bit. We'd talk about a bunch of stuff in there you wouldn't be all that interested in. And some people would use some salty language. Not me, of course. But some people would, and I don't want you to have to hear all that. And uh, you, it, it gets heated in there sometimes. You just stay in the car, and I'll come back and get you in a little while. We'll go home, and you can bless the meal of my dinner before I eat it. But the point is that if you are a Christian, you are living for Jesus Christ. His love compels you. His love fuels you. His love moves you forward. And so Jesus goes with you everywhere you go, even into the work that you do. And this begins to change the way that you and I would see the work that we do. So verse 16 says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So when you and I begin to see the work that we do as a ministry, primarily a ministry, it begins to change, the Bible says, it primarily begins to change how we see the people that we work with. That if Jesus is out of the picture, the Bible says you and I will mostly view people from a, what the Bible says, a worldly perspective. In other words, that's my teacher. That's my boss, that's my coworker, that's my coworker who smells funny. That's the person who cleans the offices, a worldly perspective. But when we add Jesus to the equation, when we begin to see our work as ministry, when Jesus gives us this new lens to see the work that we do and to see the world around us, we begin to see people not by what they do, but by who they are. And not just who they are from our perspective, but who they are from God's perspective. So, for example, from God's perspective, the Bible says that all people are created in God's image. That God has knit this unspeakable value and worth into the fabric of every single person. So that when you honor the value or the worth knit into someone Even when you're having to make hard decisions in a work environment, when you honor the value and the worth knit into a person, you show the difference that Jesus Christ is making in your life. You show the transformation Jesus is bringing into your life. The Bible also says that God has placed eternity in every human heart. So in other words, every person has this deep yearning to have a vibrant living relationship with their creator. Now some people feel that deep yearning daily. Other people have buried that deep yearning under years of pain or indifference or unresolved questions or busyness. But the point remains the same. God has placed eternity in every human heart. So when you and I begin to see the people in our spheres as not just what they do and not just who they are, but who they are from God's perspective, we begin to try to honor the value and the worth that they have. Also begin to ask, how can I help point this person towards God? God's already done the hard work. God already put eternity in their heart and God already put you in their life. Now you and I have the opportunity to to be that trusted Christian friend, that trusted guide on the journey as uh, helping one more person discover who God is and the hope that you have found in Jesus Christ. Now you don't have to be a jerk about this, you don't have to be ugly about this. Be a trusted friend, a trusted guide in what can be a confusing journey. So verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. You could also translate it, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. So that when you identify yourself with Christ, when you trust your life on earth and your life in eternity into Jesus' hands, the Bible says you are made new. In a moment, you are made new. I had someone come to me after the 815 service and said, but I didn't feel anything when it happened. I said, that's fine, but the Bible says you are made new. (laughs) Sometimes you feel it and sometimes you don't. But the nice thing about the truth is it really doesn't matter if you feel it or not. The Bible says you are made new. The old you is gone. The new you is here. You move from death to life. You begin to really live. And then the passage just kind of goes on and is just honest about it. Man, the old you looks like the new you and the old you. They look the same. (laughs) The new you does most of the same things the old you did. Hopefully some of the, the, the things you do will begin to change. But like you go to the same job, you go to the same school, you live in the same house. A lot of the what's stay the same. What really begins to change is the why. The purpose behind all of these activities. Verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So God is the great reconciler. Through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is reconciling the world to Himself. And when you and I trust our life on earth and our life into eternity, into Jesus' hands, the Bible says we are made new. Very good. The word was new, if you didn't fill in the blank. We are made new and we are forever reconciled to God. Jesus' love enlivens us. The Bible says it fuels us. It compels us forward. We begin to see people as God sees them, the value and the worth that He has knit into them. But when you and I are made new in that moment, God entrusts us with two things. He entrusts you with a ministry and He entrusts you with a message. God entrusts you with a ministry and with a message. The new you goes back to your old life, but you begin to see some of the same things, but you see them through a different lens, and you realize that your life is a ministry. Your life in your home is a ministry. Your life in your work is a ministry. Your life as a friend, your life in your neighborhood is now a ministry. God has you there on purpose. God is going to do great work in you, but God is also going to do great work through you. You are a minister, including a minister to the people at work. I mean, imagine I came to your place of work tomorrow, and I walked in and I found someone who looked like they were in charge, and I said, Hello, I am a minister. I would probably get the response I typically get, which is, You're a minister? I should button my coat. Maybe you could tell a little bit more. But then I would say, yes, I'm a minister. Uh, Do you mind if I come back tomorrow and share a few thoughts with everybody here? What would the response to that be? Probably no. (laughs) Probably some salty language followed by the word no. But here's the good news, which may first sound like scary news, but is actually good news. Your office, your school, your neighborhood, your home does not need me to come in and be a minister. They already have a minister. If you are a Christian, and this is the good news that will sound like scary news, but it's actually good news you are their minister. They already have a minister. God has already entrusted them to the care of a minister, and the minister is you. So when you and I begin to see that, when we begin to see our work as a ministry, we begin to be a little more careful about what we do. We become a little more careful about what we say. We may be a little more likely to seek God in prayer before a really tough day or a tough week or before we walk into a, a specific meeting and say, Christ, fill me with your love. Let your love drive me forward through this. Compel me through this because I don't know how to get through this on my own. I certainly don't know how to be a minister in the midst of this. You and I, when we put our faith in Christ, are ministers entrusted with a message that God is the great reconciler. That God does not hate the world. In fact, God loves the world. And at great cost to himself is reconciling the world to himself. So Paul sums it up this way. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Through us, in other words, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are christ 's ambassador, you are the representative for Jesus Christ, wherever you go, whatever you do, even in the midst of the work that you do. so i 'd like to just take a little sidestep right now, uh, a little pause in the flow of the sermon, and, and just name two ways that I think the Christian faith sets Christians up to be a force for good in all kind of fields. There may be a bunch of ways, but these are at least two ways that I think Christian faith sets Christians up to be a force for good in the world at large and in a different, any number of different professional fields. And they are these. Number one, number one, number, 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 number one. Jesus equips us to distinguish what is moral from what is legal. Jesus equips us to distinguish what is moral from what is legal. Those are not the same things, by the way. There are plenty of things that are allowed by law that God would say are neither good nor right. And there are other things that God would say are good or right that at certain times and places have been illegal. Now, Christians, as people being formed by Jesus Christ, we're more formed to think about what is right and what is good, not simply what can I get away with under the law. And it seems to me that this is a way that we can serve the greater good within the work that we do. And we can show the difference that Jesus is making in our lives. You think about some of the issues we get into because large industries start asking, what can they get away with? What is legal, not what is right? So for instance, we just had a ministry partner retire uh, from, a, from a pretty tough industry. He was a professional wrestler. That's a joke. He was in, he's in uh, private equity, which is somewhat like professional wrestling, but uh, a little more gloves off, but he's in private equity. And at his retirement party, there were two major themes that came out. The first was that his coworkers and again, this is an international company, generally secular people, uh, the first thing that came out about him was that he was clearly a Christian. He talked the talk, but he could also walk the walk, and his coworkers appreciated that. The second thing they said was that because of that, he was constantly asking what was the right thing to do when faced with a dilemma. Not what could they get away with or what's legal, but what was the right thing to do. And so you have this room of generally international and secular people thanking a follower of Jesus for making themselves and making their company better by asking when faced with tough issues, what is the right thing to do? Fascinating. But a way that 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 we can show you and I can show that our lives are different because of Jesus. The other one was this number two. Number two. You want me to finish it? Number 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 two. Jesus empowers us to give away credit instead of blame. Give away credit instead of blame. I don't know. We, I think we all know work environments that work like this, right? Everyone is trying to take credit for everyone else's work, while at the same time assigning blame to everyone else when something goes wrong, right? It's like this weird ecosystem where people breathe in credit and breathe out blame. Did I just describe some of the jobs you've had in your life? Okay. Come work at Lake Forest Davidson. Hopefully we don't do that. I think Christians are poised to make a real difference and impact in that kind of an approach. Because as a Christian compelled by the love of Jesus, I live from approval. I I don't live for approval, I live from approval. Because of Jesus, I have an unshakable approval in God's sight. And so I can get a little less caught up in the calculus of how the blame and credit game all shakes out. Of course, when you read organizational leadership material, it's almost like a truism. It's almost a cliche at this point that the best organizations are those that are led by people who think this way. I think the phrase is, they look out the window to assign credit and they look in the mirror to assign blame. In other words, great organizations flip the credit and blame game. The people, and it starts at the top, they're trying to give away credit and they take the blame on themselves. Well, I think Christians are uniquely positioned to be able to, to help with that. Because if we live from approval, from approval in Jesus Christ, we have God's approval, we don't always have to win the credit and blame game. Because our identity is not staked in whether I get the credit for how great that project was. Because I have a secure identity in Jesus Christ. Now here's the truth. Your boss or your board, they may not have any idea about any of this. They may not know that you doing it Jesus' way is better for your organization. But your boss with a capital B does know this. And I th- he gets the final eval anyway. He does the final review. So I think there's ways that we, you and I can truly be Christ's ambassadors, representatives for Jesus in the work that we do. And it will people will notice the difference. People will notice the difference. And that's at least two ways I think it could happen. Okay, pushing to a conclusion. Here we go. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is referring to the death of Jesus, when Jesus died on a cross, that when Jesus died on the cross, he made a grand exchange, that Jesus is God, he has a perfect relationship with God, he has no sin, he has no shortcoming, he has nothing that would separate him from God. But as he was dying on the cross, he took on our sin, he became our sin, he became the representation of our sin so that it could be judged, so that our rebellion against God could be judged. And so that it could be forgiven. And then Jesus offers us his righteousness, which means his right relationship with God. This is the grand exchange that Jesus offers. He will take on and deal with our sin and he will give to us his right relationship with God as a gift. He breathes in our sin and breathes out His righteousness. He breathes in death and He breathes out life. He breathes in our blame and breathes out His credit. He breathes in our despair and breathes out His hope. He breathes in our guilt and breathes out His forgiveness. He breathes in and He can no longer breathe out. That's how crucifixion kills you. It suffocates you. He hangs his head and he dies. When you and I see the crucified Jesus, we see the outstretched arms of God. We see what God is offering us, the grand exchange that he is offering, that the one who was without sin became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. He took care of our failures and extends to us his inheritance. So we join Paul in saying, be reconciled to God. Come home to God's outstretched arms. Trust your life into the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and feel the weight of your sin and your shortcomings overwhelmed by Jesus' resurrection and new life. So that you and I could get to the place where we could walk out of this room back to the life that we know, only to discover that it's a new life altogether. It's not just the old you in the old life, it's the new you in that life, and it is now a ministry because of Jesus. It is now a ministry. So the question I'd like to have you reflect on as I close is this. What has changed or what would change from seeing your work as a ministry? What has changed or what would change from seeing your work as a ministry? We've talked about how work can be a God-given gift. That it's good in and of itself. We've talked about how work can be a window into God's character. But what would change or what has changed from seeing your work as a ministry? What would it look like to take the insights from this passage and apply it to the work that you do? All right, so here's my last thought on this whole series about work. When Jesus starts to transform us, it's always good, but sometimes it's disorienting. Sometimes you don't know what end is up for a little while, because you had kind of gotten used to the world that you knew, and then Jesus comes in, because you sang it in the song, you know, he can come and change what he wants to change, so, so he starts to come in and change some stuff, and, and then it starts to really get a little wonky for a little while, and you can't figure out what, everything, you. it gets tough, and this can happen if you begin to see your work more as a gift, more as a ministry, more as a window into God's character. Well, like, what happened to like? I want to excel in my work, or I do my work to make money, or, or or I do my work because I enjoy it. Well, that's all good stuff. It's good to excel, it's good to make money, it's good to enjoy it. But what if those aren't the point anymore? What's the point of work? So, do you know the guy um, who wrote the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien? Tolkien. I don't know how to say his name. Never met the guy, but. Uh, he wrote the Lord of the Rings books and and they made movies about him and such. So he he had a a, a severe bout of writer's block. And and I would guess because he's like, I'm a writer, like what's the point of this? I just write books. And so he overcame his writer's block by writing a short story and the short story is called Leaf by Niggle, N-I-G-G-L-E. Leaf by Niggle. Niggle is the guy in the story, and and he he has been commissioned to paint a tree on a side of a building to add some beauty into this drab world. But Niggle works painstakingly slow, and so he's working on the first leaf, and there's intricate detail, and it is beautiful, and it is lovely, and he can see how this whole tree is going to fit on the side of this building. But in the story... Niggle has to leave the place. He has to get on a train and leave. It's it's the equivalent of like dying and going to heaven. It's kind of an allegory. So Niggle has to leave, and all he got to paint was the leaf. It's a beautiful leaf, but he only got the leaf. Leaf by Niggle. Uh, you kind of okay, good. Just making sure. I'm gonna have to say it specifically at eleven. Sometimes eleven misses stuff. Uh, So he's going up the side of the mountain on this train, and as he's going up the side of the mountain, he looks over to the side of the train and is overcome with joy because he sees the tree in all its glory, the tree that he saw in his mind but only got to paint a leaf of, he sees the tree there, and he is overcome with joy. And so I sort of take, if you look at it as the author's reflection on his own sense of purpose and vocation, I kind of think he's asking, what if the point of the work that we do is that we get to paint one leaf of a beautiful tree? But it is, and this is why the Christian faith is good news, it is a tree that actually exists. That we are not engaged in this meaningless exercise of just occupying ourselves until, until we just give our space dust to the next person, and it's just some sort of meaningless uh, trail of events one after another after another. It's a tree that actually exists, that one day our work will be done and we will close our eyes. But when we open our eyes, we will see something that language could never capture. And we will realize that the best of what we have worked for exists that justice really exists, that mercy really exists, that beauty really exists, that there is a place where all children are perfectly cared for. There is a place where all needs are met. There, There is a community based on love and on trust. There is such thing as genuine laughter, that good triumphs in the end. You will see the tree of which you got to paint a leaf. And then, in a moment that may make you forget every previous moment, you will see the one who spoke that tree into existence. And you will realize that God reconciled the world to himself through Jesus Christ and made it new. And that by God's grace, you and I got to play some little small part in that. And that's how he got through his writer's block. (laughs) And maybe helps orient you and I as we think about, well then what's the point of what I do day in and day out? Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God or to listen to God. about whatever He's stirring inside of you. Just take this moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you that you give us purpose, that we do not have to live in a meaningless existence, but that you give us a purpose beyond what our minds could even imagine. By inviting us into your story, into the work that you are doing, and letting us paint our little leaf. So Lord, I do pray that as the scripture says, we would be made new. That some of us here this morning would take the step of putting our faith in Christ, of trusting our life into his hands. So that we might walk out of this room as a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. Lord, if we've already taken that step of putting our faith in Christ, I pray that as we leave here, we would walk back into a world that we know and yet see it through different eyes and realize that we have been sent out as a minister to care for the people that you have placed in our lives and in our path and to find our appropriate way of saying, You know God loves the world and loves you, and at great cost is reconciling you to himself. So Lord, I pray as we come to this uh, wonderful, sentimental, sometimes hard part of the year, that we would keep our eyes on you and the purpose and calling you've given to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship with our voices, our offering, and our prayer requests.